Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Gottesdienst crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today, we have with us Mark Serberg. He is the pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Marion, Illinois. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's good to have you on. You were just recently at the Central Illinois District Pastors Conference, and you're pre- you presented on the material that we're about to, to go through today. Um, the, the topic is it's a really important one. It's uh, Lutherans and their relationship to the law, and as the law is seen and used in Lutheran preaching in particular, and this is a topic that has been kind of bandied about for quite some time on the Gottesdienst blog and in Gottesdienst circles, kind of beginning with Heath Curtis and the work he was doing in translating Gerhard and Chemnitz and and even Luther. Uh, he just noticed, uh, kind of like many of us did, that when he read the sermons of Luther or of Gerhard uh, or even of Walther, uh, they preached the law very differently than than we did. Of course, they preached to expose sin, but they also used the law to exhort to good works. And this was something that he noticed that he wasn't really taught to do. In fact, he was taught to do the very opposite. And many of us at Gottesdienst, like Peterson and me and and Eckert, were saying, yeah, uh, this doesn't seem Lutheran. And he kept saying, well, you're not more Lutheran than Luther. And uh, <laughs> and you've kind of noticed this problem, this problem too, the problem of preaching in the the new pastors, uh, probably since uh, I don't know, the, maybe the eighties could be could be even as as late as the nineties that we were taught at least at the Fort Wayne Seminary this general outline like the first half was you suck. Uh, the second half is it doesn't matter because Jesus died for you, and then the third half is uh, and here are the sacraments which give you what Jesus died for you. Uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, and it's not a bad sermon, right? It's not a bad sermon. Right. It's it's just not the fullness of what even great Lutherans were doing. So, what is the problem with Lutheran preaching? Well, the basic problem is um, an, an inability or even sometimes a refusal uh, to preach about new obedience and good works so that our our sermons, uh, generally speaking, have often not exhorted and admonished and taught uh, about how Christians are to live uh, because of what Christ has done for us. Uh, and so there's this, this general um, inability to do so. And uh, I went to St. Louis, and although uh, at St. Louis they might have sort of wanted to use or suggest using different outlines and, you know, different ways of constructing the sermon, the same basic principle was still there. I mean, it was basically, you're going to show people that they've sinned, you're going to speak to them forgiveness, and then the exciting new thing that, you know, I had been exposed to at the seminary was, like, as you said, uh, the sacraments are the the grounded means by which Christ gives us forgiveness, uh, and that was it. Uh, and so my own experience coming out as a preacher was, you know, you you look for um, items in, in the text that, that are law that you can address to the sinner and, and confront his sin. Uh, and then you look in the text for, you know, specific gospel statements that um, expound the gospel. And, and so those are the things you proclaim to give people forgiveness. Um, and then, of course, as you said, you know, grounded in the sacraments and having done all that, the, the mission is done. You're, you're all finished. Uh, and um, over time, you know, the first couple of years as I was preaching, I began to wonder, you know, um, you're a sinner, you're forgiven. Um, is that really all that preaching is supposed to be sharing with people? Uh, and then in particular, simply, you know, as you as you read the Gospels and as you read Paul, you find that all the time they're talking about how Christians are to live. And, uh, you know, that language would be characterized as law. And, and I had sort of been taught to think, well, that, that law just puts people under condemnation. Uh, so does that mean I'm not supposed to speak that way? But yet, Jesus and Paul speak that way. So um, that got me thinking that may, maybe there's something wrong with the, the system I've been taught. 
Yeah, the interesting thing for me was I found that most of my pastoral counseling, if you, if you can call it counseling, when people came in for spiritual counsel and they were like, "Pastor, here's the issue. You know, what do I do?" The the way that I was taught to preach didn't help me. And right. I found that I was always going back to really just the table of duties. Like, what is your mm-hmm. duty here? And right. that got me thinking like, well, if if people are wondering what that is, maybe I should preach about it. <laughs> maybe I should teach sure. about this, you know, outside of yep. Bible class or 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 just one-on-one. Maybe this should be something included in uh, as it's appropriate, as the text lends itself perhaps, but maybe this is something that should be included in my kind of normal repertoire of preaching and teaching. Um, yes, absolutely. It, did you find that also? Yeah, no. The the uh, in speaking to uh, pastoral care situations, um, obviously you're a sinner, you're forgiven <laughs> is the the heart of it. But uh, the the specific direction and guidance and counsel you're providing ends up being the kinds of things that you find in the New Testament talk about how you're supposed to live. And so that's that's the way you end up speaking, yeah. and uh, that that really surely can't be limited only to um, the pastoral office, but surely it, you know it needs to also find its way into the pulpit. Yeah. Okay. So, what about good works then? Uh, besides, uh, maybe just take us through the New Testament texts. Maybe just take us through what uh, what you found in kind of the Lutheran divines, uh, particularly maybe even in our confessions. How do they speak about this, and 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 how do they teach us to speak about this? Well, they speak about uh, good works as being something that should be done by Christians, uh, that are good to be done, that obviously they are considered to be, first of all, they're produced only because of what Christ has done for us. It is the gospel that causes us to do good works, and they're considered to be good only because of what Christ has done for us. Uh, but then, having said those things, uh, they then make the assertion that um, we are to do good works, uh, that we are to live in ways that reflect the faith of Christ, what he has done for us. Uh, and that in doing so, um, we then manifest what the gospel you know, has done for us, what, that actually makes a change in our life. Um, the confessions are you know, following the scriptures and saying that you know, uh, in Christ we are a new creation that actually does something, and therefore um, the new man is going to go forth and do good works. And so uh, you know, Christians should be exhorted to do this. Um. So what's keeping, what's the fear? What's keeping pastors from wanting to kind of dive into, to help uh, provide spiritual, biblically-based counsel for, for the new life? Well, I think, I think there, are, there are several different factors that are at work here. Um, one is, um, obviously, there is just inherent uh, in the Reformation background a concern about drifting into works righteousness um, and legalism in which uh, mm. the law becomes um, the means by which you get people to do things, uh, and the, the law becomes either a source then of um, despair because I can't do those things or a source of pride uh, because I'm able to do those things. Um, and then also, you know, our theological anthropology, we recognize rightly that, uh, you know, as Paul expresses in Romans 3, uh, that, that we are um, have all fallen short of the glory of God, uh, that we're all sinners, uh, that there's no one who does good, not even one. Um, and therefore, uh, we're inherently sort of um, hesitant to speak in these ways. Uh, the broader problem, I think, really is a, is a really more a post-World War II issue. Uh, and I think it goes back to uh, the work of Venner Ehlert, uh, who, uh, in his denial of the third use of the law, um, mm. That theology came into the Missouri Synod, at least in our own setting, uh, but also uh, just in, in Lutheranism in general. Uh, and in this denial of the third use of the law, uh, you then had um, uh, those texts that speak in the way. It, I mean, it is, it is the, the texts that have paranesis, that have exhortation, uh, that are all over uh, in the letters of Paul especially, but, but all over the New Testament, that um, prompted um, the teaching about the third use of the law in the first place. Uh, once you deny the third use of the law, then when you come to those texts, uh, your uh, your move is basically either to um, ignore them, which is one thing that we've done, we just simply don't treat them, or you treat them simply as being texts that mm-hmm. uh, are meant to confront sin and show people they're sinner. They show people they, they don't do these things. 
And so um, this this general hesitancy arises within modern Lutheranism uh, to speak uh, those that language of exhortation, largely because of a denial of the third use of the law. Uh, and so if I had to find a, a root cause, I would probably go back to Alert uh, and the, the trajectory that he set um, Lutheranism off on. I, mean, I remember in 2008, uh, uh, the, the constant refrain was, well, there were two constant refrains when this kind of thing came up. And and you gave us a helpful term to to distinguish it. You know, People were saying, like, you might be an antinomian if... Uh, at least that's what was coming out of Gottesdienst and other places. They're like, "Hey, we're not against the law. We're not against the law." And right. and so you, you you helpfully labeled this kind of soft antinomianism, um, right? And but even still, the two uh, main responses were one, um, you know, look, the law always accuses, and so you can't help that; it's going to accuse. And so you can't leave them under that condemnation, as you've already mentioned. The second was like, remember the simul. <laughs> and remember that we are simultaneously righteous and sinner at the same time, uh, which of course is what simultaneous means. Um, but the it always struck me as strange, like, okay, if this is the case, don't we want the law to condemn the sinner? And if the new man rejoices in it, so why are we afraid of it? Um, and so you see this coming out of Alert and uh, and Company. Uh, how does it come through the rest of? I mean, how does that get to the Missouri Synod? Because he's in he's in Germany. Well, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, in 1948, uh, the major theologians of the Missouri Synod gathered together with Alert and and the other. Um, sort of leading uh, Lutheran theologians in, uh, and in Germany, and um, were very highly influenced by them. They were very impressed uh, by uh, the sort of the superstars of, of modern Lutheranism, and uh, began sending their students over uh, to Germany to study. And then that theology uh, was brought back. And of course, um, the the, the Seminex issue. While we we focus on uh, the battle for the Bible, uh, it was also ultimately um, a question about um, law and gospel. Um, and uh, this denial of the third mm. use of the law became a, an issue that was part of it too. Uh, so that's sort of how it, it came into Lutheranism. And then I think, with since um, well, uh, in the since the eighties and nineties, uh, I think in, there are two other sources that I think have really contributed to this. Um, one is uh, the theology of Gerhard Ferdi, um, who you know talks about that good works are, are purely spontaneous. Um, and, and so the, the metaphor is always used as a good tree brings forth good fruit, uh, which has a, a long heritage, obviously. Um, so this idea that um, <laughs> the, the, it's simply going to uh, naturally happen and therefore, you know, you don't need to talk about it. Uh, so he talks about this, that the um, sanctification is the, the art of getting used to justification, the sort of you know, pro natural process that happens. Uh, and he talks about Romans 6 to 1 to 11 uh, as if that, that is a, a commentary on all of sanctification, uh, which, of course, immediately after that in 12, uh, Paul turns to actually exhorting uh, the Christians how to live. Uh, so Paul doesn't think that's a full commentary. Um, that's been a very important factor. And then uh, mm -hmm. the other important factor, I think, has been um, the way that American evangelicalism talks, where sanctification becomes uh, sort of the, ult uh, the ultimate proof that one is a Christian, uh, speaking about sanctification in terms of um, Christian living. Uh, and, you know, we're very, conventional Lutherans became very sensitive to the fact that um, American evangelicals were talking about sanctification all the time. And uh, there was sort of this uh, recognition, you know, well, this is, it's not being done in the right way. Uh, it's being done in a very law-focused way as if the law is the source of um, good works, as if they actually, you know, fully prompt good works. And so uh, because American evangelicals was doing this all mm. the time, the response of Lutherans was sort of to go to the opposite end of the spectrum, which is, well, we're not going to do that. We're not going to talk that way. Um, and this was sort of coupled with um, the discovery uh, that when you look at the way Scripture speaks on the whole and the way you look at uh, the confession speak, when they speak about sanctification, uh, they mean it uh, in this very broad sense of, you know, God actually uh, making us holy. 
And so the, the Lutheran reaction was, well, see, sanctification isn't about what we're doing. It's about what God does for us. So they've just got sanctification all wrong. The, the problem is that that doesn't provide the answer to how you use all that biblical language, which is talking about how Christians are to live. Um, and so uh, it simply it, mm-hmm. it avoided the problem altogether sort of made confessional Lutherans feel better when we know um, this is what sanctification is really about. And so we're not going to talk that way at all. Uh, but one of the reasons that that language in, in American evangelicalism is persuasive uh, is because it is so biblical, because it's everywhere. And so uh, if I had to sort of identify the, the yeah. sources of this, um, that those are the three places I would go. It's Alert is the sort of the, the fountain source of this. Um, but certainly in, in our, our modern context, uh, Ferdy has been a very strong influence. And then also um, the reaction against even American evangelicalism has played a very large role in sort of shaping and forming the way confessional Lutherans are, are speaking. So if, if, if we only do theology by reaction, we're always, I mean, we're not going to have anything really solid to stand on, will we? Um, no, no. <laughs> what's the what's the um you know what's the the proper way forward i guess what's the what direction does uh, do we get from again our lutheran forebears to say this is uh, if we're talking about sanctification we're talking about addressing uh, the new obedience and the use of the law for that or or even you know trying to combat you know the ferdy type uh, automaticity uh, of of good works. Um, how do our uh, how do Lutherans from uh, early on speak of the new obedience and the role of the Christian in them? Well, the the confessions um, in in our form of Concord Article Six uh, point us towards um, Luther's sermon on the, the nineteenth Sunday after Trinity, in which um, Luther is expounding um, Ephesians four, uh, and he, he makes the point that Paul seems to almost be overdoing it, uh, that he, he's constantly exhorting, and his point is that uh, because of the fallen nature, um, it's necessary to continue to hear these things. And so um, it's the same mm-hmm. thing that uh, Kemet says in his Losi when he's talking about in relation to the antinomies of, of his time, uh, which had in the second antinomian controversy, and it was gave rise to what we have in the form of the Concord, uh, saying that, uh, and it's, it's interesting, you could you almost hear Ferdy's language, he says, they say it's as if it's just, you know, a good tree brings forth good truths, but it says it's not so simple as that uh, because you have the fallen man. And so the approach of the, the confessions is to say that the because the Christian is both new man and old man at the same time, um, the law needs to continue to be spoken to them uh, in terms of exhortation, uh, mm-hmm. and that, that law addresses the old man uh, in order to coerce him into uh, doing these things that he must do. Uh, in, in the battle of the old man and the new man, uh, that the, the repressing work of the law uh, assists the new man in this battle uh, so that the new man can actually carry the day. I would say there are sort of what I've called soft antinomianism, um, which is, I, I find it to be a helpful term because, number one, it is a form of antinomianism. Um, it is uh, an inability or even refusal mm-hmm. to, to speak the law. Um, but it, this is not uh, the, the two prior forms in which it's occurred. The, the, first, um, the first one was in, in relation to Agricola, uh, who was saying that uh, you speak the, the gospel in order to work repentance. And of course, that was rejected. And then the, the second one was uh, the second mm-hmm. antinomian controversy, which was a result of um, first people saying that good works are necessary for salvation, and then people going to the opposite end of the spectrum and saying, no, they're not necessary. Uh, and so um, Lutherans then saying um, the law needs, that the people were saying that, that you don't need to continue to speak the law uh, to Christians who have been converted. And the Lutheran response was, no, uh, we have to continue to speak the law. Um, the... The current setting has, is very clear that the law needs to be spoken to Christians. So that would be the second controversy. And it's very clear that um, the law 
is the thing that convicts sinners. So that would be the first controversy. So there's no issue with those things. Instead, there's a general um, inability to speak the law in terms of um, exhortation, admonition, you know, talking about how to live the Christian life. And so that's why it is antinomianism, but it's not the same. And so that's why I've, I've called it soft antinomianism. Soft is a, um, a word that's used in philosophical discussions uh, to describe something that is not as thoroughgoing. Uh, and that's why I find it helpful to just do a, a, a differentiate it uh, as something that is, it's not as thoroughgoing. That is, it will speak the law, but it won't speak the law in certain ways. And there's sort of two, I would say, um, presuppositions at the heart of this belief. The, the first one is that um, basically the Christian always fails. So it's, it's Romans 7, read in kind of isolation from the rest of the context, uh, in which um, the, the belief is mm. that um, the Christian may try, but he's always going to fail. Um, but our failures actually are a good thing because they turn us to Christ, and in him we have forgiveness. Um, and, and if obviously, if that is your, your attitude towards um, the, the Christian life, that you're just going to fail, then you're not going to speak to Christians about how they're supposed to live, because obviously they're just going to fail. Um, the other one is that uh, as the law accuses, it only does that it only does one thing, that it only um, convicts of, excuse me, that it only convicts of sin uh, and in doing so uh, brings the sinner to repentance. And if you think that the law only does one thing, uh, then um, your only goal will be to, you know, direct sharp accusatory law towards individuals that's going to convict them of their sin. Now, I would argue that both of those presuppositions are wrong, uh, and that's where um, this soft antinomianism that has sort of um, taken hold of, you know, post-World War II Lutheranism um, goes off track. All right, so why are those beginning presuppositions wrong? We'll just take them in turn. Sure. Well, the, the first one is when we look at I mean, Romans 7 does uh, highlight the struggle against sin. And when you look at the Lutheran Confessions, that's actually the way that they often, they usually talk about Romans 7, is that it's, it's this struggle against sin, um, that there is weakness, and those kinds of things. But it's not a focus on failure. Uh, instead, uh, it's, it's the struggle, the focus that takes place. Uh, and, and the problem with this is that um, Romans 7 can't be isolated from what Paul does in Romans 6 through 8, uh, in which, uh, you know, Romans uh, 6, 1 and following begins with the assumption uh, that uh, we can't simply continue in sin, uh, and that instead um, that we now we walk in newness of life because of the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ and what it has done for us. Um, and as you track through uh, Romans uh, 6 and even the beginning of 7, uh, before you get to 714, um, the, the statements there continue to come back to the fact that in Christ, God has made us uh, a new creation, that he has um, brought about this change, and that uh, the new man is able to live in ways that reflect God's will, um, and that uh, there is a struggle, and ultimately, Paul um, uh, oscillates between these statements that um, you, you've died to sin, um, you're not going to live in sin anymore, to also statements where he is exhorting Christians um, to not live in sin. Uh, Romans 7 provides sort of the, the explanation for why this has been necessary, because there is this struggle. Um, but Paul comes back in chapter 8 to the idea that um, uh, in Christ, uh, God has acted in order to deal with sin. And now, um, through the work of the Spirit, um, we're enabled to to live in ways that that um, reflect God's will, uh, that we you know, put to death the deeds of, of the works of, of the flesh of, that are present in us. And in doing so, um, the, the new man can take part in this struggle. Now, he's not going to win all the time, and that's what Romans 7 does show us, but, uh, but it's not a matter of we're always going to fail. I mean, Paul's assumption is that Christians can and do succeed mm -hmm. in this struggle against uh, the flesh, and therefore against the old Adam, and therefore that's that's a struggle they need to take up. The other side of it is that um, yeah, that's interesting you that you that you say that because the uh, it does seem like it's just a foregone conclusion. So why even try? And so of course you sure. never want to speak words of encouragement or say, look, you know, you, you have some agency here. Um, uh, it's just like a foregone conclusion. You stink, but Jesus loves you. Right, exactly. Uh, and that's not at all uh, the way that um, Paul approaches things. Um, if we take a look at Romans 6, of course, the, the starting point is um, 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized in his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism and death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's very interesting that Romans 6, the text we think because of the classic baptismal text, isn't actually talking about forgiveness. Uh, that's not Paul's goal here. Paul's goal is to talk about um, mm-hmm. living as a Christian uh, and the work of the Spirit that makes this possible. Um, and in fact, in Romans 6, 1 to 11, if you were to read just that text, uh, as I like to say, we'd have to all go out and join a holiness church uh, because Paul speaks so strongly about uh, the fact <laughs> that um, we we have died to sin in Christ uh, by our baptismal um, sharing in his death. Now we're, we're dead to sin, and instead uh, this newness of life is present. Um, but having said that then, he turns around then and says in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And so we see that Paul, on the one hand, uh, speaks very strongly about our ability to live in newness of life. And at the same time, he also exhorts the Christians that they actually need to do these things. And so um, he assumes um, there is the agency to do this because of what uh, the Spirit has done. At the same time, he assumes that there's the need to exhort Christians to live in these ways uh, because of uh, the presence of, of the old Adam. And that's what he expounds in, in Romans 7. He does it so well that I think, and, and rhetorically he does it so dramatically, that um, uh, it draws our attention you know, to the, the failure aspect. But um, the struggle is actually the thing that he is really highlighting there. And in fact, um, when you look at what Paul does uh, in Romans 7, he returns to the very same idea. Um, we often uh, view 724 uh, as being the um, sort of the, the, the crowning statement, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? But he returns in 25 to say, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. He returns to to expressing the fact that both sides of these are true. And therefore, you know, that's why he can go on to say in Romans 8, 12. So then brothers, uh, we are, so then brothers, we are debtors to the flesh, um, not to live according to the flesh. For live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, the Paul who just said in Romans 7 about the struggle, uh, if he thinks it's possible to put to death the deeds of the body, um, he's not going to come back, you know, if he doesn't think that's possible, he's not going to come back in, in chapter 8 and be talking about how you put to death the deeds of the body, that this is actually a, a possibility for the Christian. Uh, and so um, there is this agency, it's, right. it's worked by the Spirit, the Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, uh, and therefore we need to emphasize to people that they do have this ability present in them because of what the Holy Spirit has done. This is the very language that we use in the confessions when we talk about cooperation. Um, it's something that Walther emphasizes as well in Law and Gospel. And so to recognize um, the fact that the Spirit actually makes a difference in the way we live um, gives us um, confidence that we can actually speak to Christians and say, you know, this is what God has made you in Christ. So, you know, live in these ways that to know that there is um, the power and the ability to do that. Do you think that, you know, going back to Romans 6, do you think that people hear dead to sin and they think just in terms of dead because of sin? And so they make that kind of... That may uh, be, yeah. Because of sin, we're dead, but we're alive in Christ Jesus, instead of thinking that what has happened in baptism is actually make us dead with respect to sin, that is, uh, that, that we have a new life outside of sin now. No, I think that's that's very possible, um, and I, I just I think that we are so focused on, and rightly so, on on hearing the, the gospel and the forgiveness of sins, that we um, we sort of have blinders on. So you know, we we come to Romans six and we think, well, there's got to be forgiveness of sins here, um, and in fact, you know, that's not the only subject that Paul wants to talk about. Uh, he he very, talks very very strongly and yeah. uh, very often about, you know, how Christians are to live. Uh, and therefore, you know, it's, it's not just, um, 
you know, we continue in sin that grace may abound. Uh, that's almost, in some ways, uh, the, the assumption of, of a lot of modern Lutheranism that we're, we're going to continue in sin, and the good news is grace will abound. Um, but uh, this is not at all, um, you know, the way Paul talks about things. And so his emphasis is on the fact that um, because of what God has done for us in Christ and because of our baptismal um, participation and a connection to it, um, that now the Spirit has caused us to die to sin, and therefore now also, you know, to live to God. And the living to God is is living in ways that reflect Christ. Now, is there any sense within kind of modern Lutheranism, perhaps not the Missouri Synod, but maybe beyond, of pitting then Paul against Jesus? Does Jesus speak this way? Does uh, Is Paul taking up what he's learned from uh, from Jesus himself? Well, certainly, I mean, look at Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus has all kinds of things to say about how you're supposed to live as a Christian. Um, and so, uh, you know, Paul right. is this, this, you know, this idea that, um, you know, there are certain ways that God wants us to live. And, and uh, because of, you know, for, in Christ's language, because we have received the kingdom of God, uh, therefore, in, in, in his presence, in his death and resurrection, um, now we are going to live in ways that reflect this Um you know, um, we're going to do these good works and let our light shine before men so they may, um, you know, it brings glory to the Father ultimately. So, uh, you know, you certainly can't pit them against one another. You know, within um, within uh, liberal Lutheran circles, you have sort of this, this idea of love, which trumps everything. Um, and uh, whatever is decided, defined as being loving, you know, it becomes the standard and, and therefore statements in Paul that you find that you might not like. Uh, it becomes the means to avoid them, sidestep them, and say that those aren't those aren't consistent with love. Uh, however, um, you know when Paul speaks, he speaks in a way that is entirely consistent with Jesus. And so, um, the, the the Christ who speaks the Sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. um, this is the same thing that Paul is speaking uh, when he addresses Christians and exhorts them, to, you know, to live in ways uh, that reflect the faith in Christ. So, does the kind of the the, the fact that in recent years, I mean, recent years, probably the last 10, 20 years, uh, the, the resurgence of kind of Luther's theology or theologian of the cross, uh, does this play into this uh, at all in terms of uh, kind of thinking like the theology of the cross is a theology of losing um, and, and a theology of failure? Uh, does that play into this at all in, in terms of... Um, discussing or focusing solely on the failure of Christians and not the new obedience? Uh, I think it, it probably has. I think that's a good observation um, because uh, obviously yeah, to speak about what Christians are going to do sounds like a theology of glory, um, even though it's, it's an entirely biblical one. Uh, and I think there probably is a, it has contributed to a hesitancy uh, to speak, you know, in what Christians actually do. Uh, you know, this is, Ultimately, this is a matter of, are you going to speak the way Scripture speaks? Um, you know, that Paul in the, you know, in, in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and um, Philippians and First Thessalonians, you know, very frequently the, the latter quarter to a third of his letters um, is material that we would, we would identify as paranesis. And actually, it's, it's even more spread out than that, but in different forms. But, but it's highly concentrated in those sections uh, so that Paul can't speak the gospel without also speaking about the way Christians live. And if you are going to be mm-hmm. biblical uh, in your theology, then you're going to need to speak about the way Christians live. It's just simply going to be necessary. Yeah. So what does, uh, how do the confessions handle this um, as you said, Ferdy talks about the spontaneity or the the automaticity. Like we think in in terms of you know you've pressed the the gospel button and these things just automatically happen. How do the confessions actually speak about that? Well, they talk about the need to uh, exhort, uh, to admonish. The, the assumption is that the old man really is present <laughs> and he he's really active and at work mm-hmm. uh, resisting uh, what what the, the new man's trying to do and so that is the very ne- reason why uh, this language of exhortation needs to be continued addressed um, that the 
Article 6 of the Formula Concord talks about how this language of um, repressing, compelling, uh, if you look at all the verbs, um, that, that's the kind of language that's, that's present uh, throughout the article about what the, the Spirit is using the law to do. Um, that the law, the Spirit uses the law to repress and compel the old Adam uh, so that he is forced to do things he doesn't want to do, um, that ultimately, you know, this provides the assistance that the new man needs. And so this struggle between the old man and the new man, um, the spirit is the one using the law to compel and repress uh, the old man so that in the struggle, uh, the new man can actually um, carry the day um, and actually, you know, do those things that are God-pleasing. Yeah, that's a that's a great picture of the, we are more than conquerors, right? And him who loved us. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the, the second issue that you brought up was um, uh, that the law only accuses, um, and that's all it does. Right. Um, and that's, that's where the, the third use of the law um, is, um, you know, it, obviously we say that the second use of the law is um, God using the law in order to reveal our sin, and that would be that, that accusing um, work that is going to reveal our sin. But as the Spirit uses the law, that's not the only thing the accusing law does. The other thing the accusing law does, it also does this work of uh, repressing and compelling the old Adam. And so the Spirit can use that law to do more than one thing uh, at the same time. In fact, oftentimes he, he most likely does because of the complexity of the sinner. Um, and we recognize that, that it's the Spirit alone who uses the law, uh, that we can't control how the Spirit is going to use the law. Um, but what we do have is the model and pattern of the way Scripture actually speaks. And that's why um, we can we can choose to speak in ways that exhort and admonish. Um, I can't control what the Spirit's going to do with that, but neither could Paul. Uh, and yet, um, he spoke in those ways. And so... Um, <laughs> he did it. <laughs> we, need to, we need to follow in that example. Um, so rhetorically, you're going to have a goal. Uh, I, I reckon, you know, we need to recognize I can't control ultimately what the Spirit is going to do with it. But the Spirit has given me an inspired model to follow, which is what I find in Scripture and the way it speaks. And so, therefore, I'm going to take up that model and use it, uh, knowing that this is the way the Spirit wants me to speak, and knowing that not only does the Spirit use that law to confront sin and convict, but the Spirit also uses that law to repress and compel the old Adam so that in the struggle between old man and new man, uh, the new man actually can carry the day. And so I can speak uh, in that confidence, knowing that the Spirit uses the law in both of those ways. And that, that goes back to then uh, addressing that, that fear we talked about in the beginning, that if I speak law to someone, I'm simply putting them back under condemnation. That's not necessarily the case at all, because the Spirit does use also the law, we confess, to do that work of repressing and compelling the old Adam in the struggle with the new man. And therefore, um, I can speak confidently knowing that the Spirit yeah. can and does use the law in that way. Yeah. Is there ever any question like uh, that you've that you've noticed? On the one hand, folks struggle with you know leaving people in the law because it's going to condemn them and lead them to despair. Uh, but is there any sense where they're worried that they're not going to give the Christian uh, the tools so that the new man can conquer? Are they ever concerned about leaving them ill-equipped to live out their Christian life uh, so that the, the the indwelling sin within them, because the old Adam still clings to the flesh, that they're they're perhaps leaving the Christian open prey for the devil, the world, and their own sinful nature. Well, I don't, I don't think that, I think the issue or the, one of the problems of soft antinomianism is that it leaves people exactly right there. Um, that if, if I think that yeah. the, the whole goal is simply, I'm going to show your sin and I'm going to speak to you the good news that in Christ you're forgiven. Um, and if I assume largely that then um, these these whatever good works are going to happen are just going to happen, then equipping you, training you, yeah. you know, teaching you is not going to be one of my goals. It just simply can't be. Right. Yeah. So it's a, I mean, it's, it's not just like, a, there's more to it than just not wanting to leave people under the law. They're, they have a different kind of spirit about what they think the law does 
and really what the goal of preaching is. I would say so. Yeah, that you know, if if your your goal is only to leave people feeling better that they're forgiven, then that's where you stop. Um, and so, you know, and, and I've mm-hmm. said in my, in my presentations that um, given the the time constraints of our sermons today, uh, in terms of the the length of time which peers really are able to listen to oral communication, um, you know. You're not you're not going to be able to exhort to Christian living in every single sermon. That's not that's not the issue. And, and frankly, they're not even every Luther sermon, although they're, they're all over the place. Um, but what it does need to be is yeah. is a, a goal and an emphasis in our sermons that this is something that I'm going to try to yeah. um, include on a regular basis. Obviously, as text suggested, and here when I preach on the epistles, it naturally just lends itself to it. But um, but Luther doesn't, you know, doesn't need that at all uh, in order to, um, to to speak about how Christians live. Um, he um, the the preface to the church apostle is what Christians should expect from the gospel, uh, and there he holds up two things: first, that it's Christ's gift, and then secondly, it's Christ's example. Um, and it's it's amazing that you know he can speak that way, but. Uh, you know, it's first uh, Christ, come, and he's very clear that that first Christ has to come to us as as the gift that we receive. But then, having received that gift, then Christ becomes the example by which we live, uh, and um, in love towards our neighbor. You know, the same thing that the postmunicolic faith towards faith towards Christ and love towards our neighbor becomes the way that Luther speaks about this all the time. Um, and so you know, the, the need mm-hmm. to include this on a regular basis that we actually address these things is going to be the difference between what a, a confessional Lutheran sermon today does and what a soft antinomian sermon does where there, it's, there's simply not going to be any concern to speak about that on a regular basis at all. Is there also a sense in which the, the, how the soft antinomian defines repentance is different than the way the Lutheran confessions do. I mean, you get kind of two ways in the apology, don't you? Um, Melanchthon says, if, you know, on the one hand, it's, uh, you know, contrition and sorrow over sin. And then, and then he'll say, and, you know, you could add a third part, which is, you know, the new obedience um, that, you know, one side is emphasizing uh, the, just the, the two things the the sorrow the contrition and sorrow sure. and then right. the other side is saying yeah but re- real repentance the repentant life the f- also has fruits thereof yes and and that that phrase from john the baptist the fruits of repentance um of course resonates throughout the confessions um and and that is an important distinction that this is not simply i'm sorry that i've sinned and i want forgiveness but it's i'm sorry i've sinned i want forgiveness and I want to now live in ways that reflect what Christ has done. Um, I want to turn away from that sin. I want to cease to sin, and I want to, you know, live in ways that reflect uh, what God has, has revealed about His will. Um, so, quite definitely, the the understanding of repentance is going to be very different in the in the the two approaches. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So those are the the, the two main issues, right? That uh, kind of a theology of failure, and then a a very narrow understanding of what the law does or how the Holy Spirit yes. uses it. Right. Um, so what's the way forward? Well, the way, the way forward is really very simple. I mean, it, it is number one to understand that um, the new man can and does actually live in ways that uh, reflect God's will. Um, and so uh, to take seriously those statements of Paul, uh, that emphasize um, that it is possible to put to death the, the deeds of the body, um, and that uh, to walk in newness of life, uh, because of the it's the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead who is at work in us, um, as uh, Paul says in Romans eight eleven. Um, and then the other side is simply to recognize that, um, sort of at a theolog- theoretical level or theological level, to to understand that the the law always accuses, but the law doesn't only do one thing as it accuses. And so, yes, it does reveal our sin. But the other Mm -hmm. thing is that it does this job of repressing and compelling the old Adam. Um, And since we know that, then um, the way forward is very simple, which is to say, speak like Paul, speak like Jesus. (laughs) Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to um, uh, speak about how Christians should live. 
Uh, don't be afraid to encourage, to admonish, to exhort Christians to live in these ways um, as part of a regular part of our preaching. Um, so where where texts speak about that, so like as I said, when you have the epistles that are there before you, this is uh, what Walter emphasizes. He says, you know, you need to actually choose these texts to preach on them. Um, you know, preach on them and preach on them the way Paul intends them to be heard, which is he's actually exhorting them uh, to live in ways that reflect Christ. Um, and then on the other hand, even where texts, you know, don't directly speak about it. Um, you know, if you look at Luther's example, it's, it's very interesting that, uh, you know, Walther says, you know, would that they would you know, sit down and read his church postles, you know, then they would really learn how to preach. Um, and this kind of goes back to the earlier part of our conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know what you were told at the seminary. I was told that uh, Luther and Walther um, were great at explaining the, the distinction between law and gospel, that they were bad at doing it, um, and that their, their sermons are actually not a model for, for how <laughs> we should preach. I mean, I, I, was, I was actually told that. Um, on, on a number of occasions, I heard that. That was always sort of the approach to, to Luther's sermons. Um, but, you know, Luther, uh, you know, he can, uh, in a sermon that talks about the text is the, the Christmas Day gospel, um, he can launch into Christ as the example and, and, and your, your deeds that are given to your neighbor uh, simply because he's already, he's already expounding the gospel. Uh, it's not for him, it's simply not possible to talk about um, faith, faith in Christ, faith that saves, with also talking about faith that does. Um, you know, it's like Galatians 5, 6, faith active in love. Um, and so that very natural move that, that simply can't avoid doing it, I think is something that we should seek to model, um, that we, we feel the same inherent connection between the gospel and the way Christians live. Uh, we proclaim the gospel, but we also proclaim the way that Christians live uh, because we know that actually a system in living that the, the law, the spirit uses the law in a way that represses the old Adam and actually, you know, helps the, the new man in his struggle. So, yeah, that was going to be my question. Like, so if we have, you know, breathed this air for the last, I don't know, yes, 50 years or so of kind of a soft antinomianism, where do we go to, to, to have it exposed in us uh, and, and learn how to do the opposite? And you mentioned just reading the Bible. <laughs> well, I, I, I would say, always yeah, a good thing. Read the, always a good thing. Read the Bible and say, uh, if I speak like the Bible, what's it going to look like in my preaching? Uh, that would be one. And then the other one, just as, as preachers, uh, there's no better, uh, Walter's right, there's no better resource than Luther's church apostles uh, because there um, you're, you're going to see mm -hmm. how, how a Lutheran <laughs> um, speaks about new obedience, how he actually talks about good works, um, how he integrates it into his sermons. And, uh, and I think it, it, it equips us to become confident that, yeah, you know, I should speak that way too. Um, this is one of those places where it's, it's I think it's unfortunate uh, where, you know, the three-year lectionary obviously doesn't match um, uh, Luther's uh, text. I mean, some of them overlap, but it's, it becomes more difficult to find. And that's one of the nice things about uh, the one-year lectionary is that, mm -hmm. you know, they actually match the exact text, obviously, uh, because it becomes so easy to, you know, what, what does Luther mm -hmm. do with this, you know, this text? Uh, it becomes very easy. But, but even if you, if you are preaching from a three-year lectionary, simply to go through and read some of Luther's sermons in his church apostle. And, and we're fortunate that, you know, CPH has published, you know, like the five volumes of it, you know, in a nice, nice modern new edition um, to actually go through and read the church apostles mm -hmm. um, is a great exposure to, you know, what should Lutheran preaching sound like? Um, and, uh, you know, I would maintain that, you know, any interpretation of Luther that can't explain and doesn't correspond to the way that he preaches is most likely faulty. Um, something has gone quite wrong. Uh, and this sort yeah. of lawless Luther or a Luther that only wants to speak accusatory law in order to convict of sin uh, simply does not match his preaching. And so that that is, I think, one of the best resources we have mm -hmm. is simply read Luther's church apostles and see how he preaches. Yeah. And there's a, a whole line of Luther scholarship that makes pretty much that same argument, which is, uh, look, if you can't find it in Luther's preaching, then it really wasn't a thing for him. Yeah, 
I mean, that that's, <laughs> seems like a, a common sense approach uh, to Luther rather than um, extrapolating yeah. out uh, from especially early Luther or, you know, various places, um, this, this theology we're convinced he had, which does somehow just doesn't match what he, you know, either he was so incompetent <laughs> that he couldn't put his theology into practice or uh, his theology is, is something quite different. Right. Uh, I've also found Gerhard's uh, postals to be quite helphal on this okay, as well. Yes. CPH has put out Walther's Gospels on his sermon uh, for his sermons on the Gospels, um, and those are quite helpful. Uh, yet none of those guys shy away from what you're talking about here, which is exhorting towards good works or the new obedience. No, absolutely, and that's that is you know. And, and I know that you know that many people who have, have sort of read this material. This this is the conclusion you come away with is that this this isn't the way I was taught to preach. <laughs> and um, if if they're doing it, then then maybe there's something there. Uh, maybe maybe the ones who are you know have been misled are those in modern Lutheranism uh, who have you know Im- imbibed this tradition which which simply doesn't match you know what we find in classical Lutheran theology. Mm-hmm. Um, where can listeners find more of your work? Uh, well, I've I've put my stuff online at Serberg's blog, uh, and so if you just search Serberg's blog, you'll find um, uh, in the some of the most read articles are about these topics. Um, and uh, if you just search soft antinomianism, um, you'll find some of that stuff as well. Wonderful. So guys, if you are looking for someone to come to your pastor's conference, look up Mark Serberg, uh, uh, have him to talk about uh, either this topic or uh, the last time we had you out here, you talked about uh, um, catechism or catechesis and confirmation. And uh, and that was also just a wonderful presentation. So thanks so much for your time, Mark, and uh, blessings on your work down there in Southern Illinois. Thank you, and you as well.